ponder. All right, Psalm 119, Psalm 119, and I have, again, enjoyed working through this psalm, and I appreciate uh, so much of the positive feedback, and uh, what was going to be just four or five sermons uh, may turn into 22, but that's quite all right. Uh, I've enjoyed uh, preaching through uh, this psalm, and it's a tremendous uh, God does a tremendous work in my heart, in my life, as I'm studying and preparing and uh, gleaning uh, nuggets of truth uh, that even I have not seen or understood before. Uh, having read Psalm, 19, Psalm 119 many times, uh, still the Lord continues to uh, bring truths and maybe uh, principles, commands I did not recognize or realize or did not grip my heart. Uh, before, but they, they have been, or once again have been, as I've been studying through this psalm. Uh, if I can take just a little bit of a side note, last Sunday, of course, was Father's Day, and I appreciate the, the message that Brother Earl brought, what a uh, powerful message that was, very practical, and enjoyed listening uh, to that, wrote down all those points, and uh, they will probably show up in the next uh, church newsletter, the Berean Beacon, as I have entitled it. And uh, so I'm thankful for that. I hope everyone, all the adult men, received a booklet on uh, leadership when gifted leaders go blind. I don't know if we had any extras. I forgot to ask. We did have a few. Okay, great. And if you did not get one, I hope that uh, uh, you can uh, receive a copy of that. Dr. Arrowwood, Pastor Arrowwood, wrote that many years ago, and we passed them out at our former ministry. And it's just a very good practical booklet on leadership. I don't know about you. Some of you maybe get gifts. For Father's Day, I don't know if anybody got a card or a gift. Uh, we share uh, gifts, and I got a real nice card. Uh, and then I I got a baseball, but it was an unusual baseball. I opened it up, and it was even bigger than the size of a normal softball. Opened it up, and I reached inside, and it squished. And then I realized. Uh-oh, my kids must think that dad has a lot of stress because it was a big stress baseball, very squishy. So I guess what I'm supposed to do when I get a lot of stress, maybe it's because they've caused a lot of stress in my life. Maybe that's why it was a big stress ball. Maybe I need to just really squish that right in front of them when they cause stress in my life. But no, it was, it was, it was nice to get a couple of gifts and just, again, being a father is the... The best job and the hardest job kind of all wrapped up in one, and uh, though there are challenges along the way, it is, it is such a blessing uh, to be a father and to be a husband. But I hope that uh, the men enjoyed their Father's Day, and so we'll dive back in now to Psalm 119, the Mount Everest of the Bible. Mount Everest made the news again. I don't know if anybody saw the headline, but there was an incredible rescue on Mount Everest. There was a, a veteran climber of Mount Everest, I guess some sort of tour guide, or guide, not tour guide, but guide, and had made several different trips up Mount Everest, and on one of her trips, saw someone who had fallen down in one of the ravines, one of the cliffs, and actually, with the the people that she was taking, went down and rescued this individual, and was able to drag them out and get them to safety, and from what I understand, that, that person survived. But Mount Everest continues to be in the, the headlines as people uh, continue to try to climb uh, the highest peak in, in the world. But this is the Mount Everest of the Bible, Psalm 
119. These are the verses that I just read, that we read together. And so, as we look at this next stanza, V-A-U, the subtitle, the letter of the Hebrew alphabet, each verse, again, of this stanza begins with this letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Of course, that does not translate quite the same into the English language, but we see this theme in this stanza of speaking God's word, speaking the truth, speaking the word of God. But we see, first of all, in this psalm, that we must plead for God's mercy. The first truth, in a sense, that we must speak is the plea, the prayer for the mercy of God. Verse 41, let thy mercies come also unto me, O Lord, even thy salvation according to thy word. That word mercies is the word in the original language, hesed. H-E-S-E-D is how we uh, translate it. And it is a term for the loyal love of God. It is one of the strongest terms that references the mercy of God and God's loving kindness. In Genesis 19 and verse 19, it is translated mercy. The same in chapter 20 of the book of Genesis in verse 13 and in chapter 21 and verse 23. But then we get to Genesis 24 and we see four, or excuse me, three times in Genesis 24 that the term is translated mercy, and then in verse 49 of Genesis 24, it is translated kindness. Now, isn't it interesting that four times this term is used in Genesis 24, and Genesis 24 is the account of the servant going to find a wife for Isaac. And we see the loyal love of God, the mercy of God throughout that chapter. As that servant goes and asks God to guide him, to lead him to the, the right woman who would be the wife for Isaac, we see God's mercy, we see his loyal love, we see his kindness, his loving kindness throughout that chapter. And it's just interesting that chapter 24 of Genesis provides such an illustration of God's loyal love for us, his kindness, his loving kindness, and his mercy to us as his bride, as the bride of Christ. So we see that we are, first of all, to plead for this mercy, this mercy of God. And mercy has been defined in general terms as God not giving us what we deserve. As Brother Earl was talking about in the Sunday School lesson this morning, what we deserve is hell. What we deserve is to be separated from God for all eternity. It is of the Lord's mercy that he saved us. We don't deserve the mercy of God. I've talked about in here many a time about the spankings that I received uh, growing up, and every one of them I deserved, and I deserved even more. But I remember the one—I I remember one spanking that I did not get. And I don't know if it was because my dad was just so angry that he couldn't come and spank me because he was afraid he would go too far. 
But I just remember in my room pleading for the mercy of God and the mercy of my father. And my dad never came that night. And I never got the spanking that I deserved. But I sat there in my room and I was paralyzed in fear. But I was thankful for the mercy of my dad in that moment. And the fact that we can show mercy to others is because God has shown mercy to us. And as we think about speaking the truth, as we are going to talk about in the next point, speaking the truth, which comes in evangelism, in singing praises, in sharing the word of God with others, we begin with this premise of God's mercy upon us. We see here again, this psalm is saying, Let thy mercies come also unto me, O Lord, even thy salvation. So the mercy of God is equated with salvation. We see in poetic form, Let thy mercies even thy salvation. There's the rhyme again in the Hebrew poetry. The rhyme of idea, the, 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 the rhyme of thought, the rhyme of principle. The mercies of God, his salvation. It is upon that truth that we then can share the mercies of God with others. And we are ambassadors for Christ. We are evangelists sharing the mercies of God that have been, first of all, bestowed upon us. And we have a burden and we have a desire and we have a motivation to share the mercy of God with others. To share the gospel, a gospel of mercy Because we have experienced mercy. It's often the ones who have been saved from much, who have realized the greatness and the depth of their salvation that have a greater burden and greater desire and greater motivation to share the truth, to share the gospel with others because they realize the greatness of their salvation, the greatness of the mercy of God. Sometimes it's, those of us who have been saved since we were little, and maybe we feel like we don't have as great of a testimony. And I remember having this thought growing up, and I remember thinking, well, I hear these different guest speakers, and I see these different individuals, and I read these different testimonies. And for a long time, I thought, well, my testimony is just so wimpy. I got saved when I was about six, seven years of age, lower elementary. My parents... In family devotions, I came under the conviction of my sin and went to my parents and I prayed and I trusted Christ as my Savior. And for a long time, I thought, what a, what a weak, what a kind of a wimpy testimony do I have? And it was as I got older and as I began to realize the, the mercy of God in my life and what he had saved me from and the depths of the sin of my heart and the depravity of my heart, I began to realize I can't despise that mercy of God because if not for the grace of God, I would be somewhere in a ditch thinking of my own heritage and my own family and thinking of the the own inclinations of my own heart and the weaknesses of my own flesh. I began to realize as I got older how great the mercy of God has been in my life. And I realized my testimony is nothing to be ashamed of. It's nothing to look down on. Yes, it may not be 
so grand and glorious as uh, some of the, the others, but it's the same mercy of God that saved them that saved me. And I, I've met people, and part of what helped me along the way is I've met people who got saved from uh, lives of, of just awful sin, and they have said, boy, I wish I had a testimony like you. Wish I had been saved when I was six or seven years old. Wish I didn't have all this baggage and all this regret and all this shame. And then I began to realize, wow, God, you have been so merciful to me to keep me from going. And my, my, the, the inclination, the sin of my own heart, the, the sin nature that I still carry with me is a, is a warning and a reminder to me of how I could go wayward. And, and if not for the grace of God and, and the importance of surrendering every day and realizing that let him who thinketh he stand to take heed lest he fall. And never to be lifted up in spiritual pride. And that is part of the testimony and the mercy of God. As we recognize, as we realize, as we are once again full of gratitude and thanksgiving for the mercy of God. It helps provide a warning to our life. That God has saved me from and saved me to a life, uh, a life of eternity with him. But saved me from hell and from sin and from the regret and the baggage and the guilt. So the psalmist pleads for the mercy of God, and he equates that with salvation. And then we see in verse 42, So shall I have wherewith to answer him that reproacheth me, for I trust in thy word. We see, I trust in thy word, and we see at the end of verse 41, according to thy word. So the word of God provides the standard, the measure by which we measure the mercy of God. So as we plead for God's mercy, that then takes us to this next point of speaking the truth. It is upon that measure, upon that standard, according to thy word, as I have trusted in thy word, upon that measure, upon that standard, I have recognized God's mercy. I have recognized his salvation. The psalmist Again, let thy mercies come also unto me, O Lord, even thy salvation according to thy word. And then, verse 42, so shall I have wherewith to answer him that reproacheth me. And then we read in verse 43, and take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. And then we go down even further to verse 46. I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. So we see in this section, in verse 43, the word judgments. Judgments are God's verdicts, God's decrees. And as we hope in God's judgments, as we just read there in verse 43, as we live a life of hope, resting in the judgments, the verdicts, the decrees of a holy God, of our God, we can expect there to be reproach. It's just going to come. We can expect reproach for speaking and living the truth of God's word. Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Don't let this be a deterrent to us living out our hope in the word of God, our hope in God's judgments. Don't let this be a deterrent to us living according to God's verdicts, according to God's decrees. But for some Christians, 
it is a deterrent. Because we as Christians, as mere mortals, as fallible human beings, we can become very fearful before a wicked world. And sometimes, and I've seen it, I've been there, and it never really goes away, this side of heaven, but there's that constant temptation to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. There is that constant fear of, okay, what are they going to think of me? How are they going to look at me? They're going to say nasty things about me. You take a stand, you live for God anywhere in this world today, you can expect some sort of negative, some sort of teasing, some sort of negative reaction. It's just going to happen. I experienced it in a Christian school growing up. I've experienced it in my adult life. I've experienced it in the ministry. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about in your workplace, working among unsaved people. Wherever it is that we go, where we take a stand for the word of God, where we live according to the truth, where our hope is in the verdicts, the decrees, the judgments of God, we are going to have some sort of resistance. So what does the psalmist pray for? He prays for or he pleads for, he asks for the word of God to be able to give him an answer to him that reproaches him. So we can expect reproach So therefore, we hope in God's judgments, we trust in his word, we measure our life by God's word, his mercies, so that we can give an answer. So that our life can live the truth and be an answer, but also so that we can speak the truth of God's word. And there are times where we have to speak up. There is a temptation that comes from those who would make fun of us and mock us. Oh, you're one of those kinds of people. Oh, you go to church. Oh, you're one of those kinds of Christians. Well, don't you know that there are Christians who do this and this and this and this? And so they put the pressure on, don't they? And they say, well, it's just a little bit. It's not that big of a deal. You you serve a God that asks you to live this way? Isn't that old school? You believe in a 2,000-year-old book? On and on it goes. And it just seems to be getting worse as the media and the politics, so much of our world is targeting Bible believers and accusing us as Christians, of all kinds of different things, even to the point now that we are hearing accusations of causing genocide because we won't celebrate perversions, sexual sins of some of the worst kinds. We have to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. And the psalmist prays for that. The psalmist speaks of that wanting to be ready to live out the truth and to speak the truth. Ephesians 4 and verse 15 reminds us to speak the truth in love. We also have read, as I mentioned already, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, that all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 
So we know it's going to come. We've talked through in the series on the book of John. We've talked about they, uh, the, the unbelievers, they hate us because they, first of all, hated our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we have to have a life that is lived according to the truth. As we know the word of God, as we hope in his judgments, as we trust in his word, as we measure our life and the mercies of God and, and, and place our, our hope in Christ and according to his word, it is then that we have the confidence to speak the truth, to answer the reproaches of an unsaved world. Why do many Christians not have the answer for the reproaches of an unsaved world? Because there's no confidence in Christ. When we are out of sorts with the Lord, when we are out of fellowship with God, when our heart is not right with God, there's not the confidence, is there? When there is sin, as we'll look at, Lord willing, on Wednesday night in our study through uh, the, the life of Joshua, when Israel went from Jericho to Ai, and they thought, well, Ai, a small city, there's going to be an easy victory, and then 30-something men are killed as they attacked Ai, and what had happened? There was sin in the camp. And it's sin that destroys our confidence to give an answer for the reproaches that are brought against our life. It is a heart right with God. It is a life that is lived in accordance with the word of God. It is a life of character, of integrity. It is a life of trust in God's word, lived according to thy word, that is hoping in God's judgments, that gives us the confidence and allows us to be that voice for the Lord wherever it is that God has put us, and we speak the truth of the word of God. Not our opinions, if we have to give an opinion, and I'm an opinionated person. I'll be happy to give you my opinion. I get myself in trouble because I give my opinion sometimes too much, too often, in too many places, and sometimes it's the wrong time. But our opinions need to be based on convictions that are based on the word of God. So as we are in a wicked world and there are lots of opportunities for us to type our opinion, for us to post our opinion, to share our opinion, and there are places and there are times where we have to do that, but we have to do so with our hope and our confidence being in the word of God and we have to share that opinion from a conviction that is based on the word of God. And I'll give you a quick illustration of this. When there is a conservative group that holds to a pro-life position and they get into a debate with unsaved people, in some cases very immoral unsaved people, of a group with several letters and additional signs beyond those letters, that conservative group, as I'm watching the debate, can give lots of good statistics and lots of good opinions and actually go to literal, common sense, basic biological realities and 
family structure and God's design, but in that debate, never once share the truth of the Word of God. Never once appeal to those unsaved individuals to trust Christ as their Savior, to see their sin before a holy God and repent of that sin. And I thought, what a missed opportunity. Oh, they, they had a great debate. They, 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 they had all of the statistics. They had all the data. They had all of the biological facts and designs. And they had all the common sense and all those basic realities that we've understood since the time that time began that everybody knows and understands but never shared the truth of the Word of God. Never shared the hope of God's judgments. And I thought, how sad. They never gave them the gospel, which is really the greatest answer to their greatest need. And they could prove every, every point and every opinion and every statement with common sense and basic biology and moral order but without the foundation of the truth of the word of God, without the gospel, they were missing the power of God, which is unto salvation, which is what their greatest need was. So I say all that to say, as the reproach of the enemy of the unsaved world comes, let's be students of the word of God so that we can answer with the truth. And it's not just my opinion, and yes, we can appeal to statistics, and we can appeal to basic design and order, and we can appeal to even a moral order and a moralism and to common sense, but let's be able to give an answer according to thy word. Let's be able to answer the reproaches with a hope in God's judgments, with a trust in the word of God. I even read one time an apologist saying, I couldn't believe it when I read it. An apologist saying, your first approach with unsaved people should not be with the word of God. It should be with basic truth or basic realities that everybody can see with, their, their, with common sense, with their, with their eyes, with their general observations. And then later, after you build a relationship with them through common sense, basic realities then you can share the gospel. Then you can give them the word of God. But don't approach them first with the word of God. And this was an apologist, a person who claimed to be a Bible-preaching, Bible-teaching individual who was teaching people apologetics. And they were saying, don't give the word of God first because you might offend them. You might turn them away. You have to go with the other statistics and data and observations first. And I thought, that's backwards. We read right here in the word of God. So shall I have wherewith to answer him that reproacheth me, for I trust in thy word. And then verse 43 says, And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. This is a phrase that we don't often think about. This is an older phrase, a phrase that is not something that is common to us. But it's similar to Joshua chapter 1, I believe it's verse number 8. This, I'm going to have to go back and I'm, going to, I'm not going to be able to quote it correctly. I'm drawing a, a blank. But Joshua chapter 1 and verse number 8. 
where we read here the same phrase. And it's a phrase that, again, we don't use very often in our modern vernacular. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. And we see here in Psalm 119, take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. What is that phrase saying? That phrase is saying, be ready to speak the truth. Don't let me lose those words. Let the word of God be so part of my life that I am ready to speak the truth. Don't let me lose those words. I just drew a blank. I just illustrated without even uh, realizing what I was doing. I just kind of illustrated. I couldn't think of the, the, the right words. What the psalmist is saying is let the word of God be such a part of my life that it is only normal and only natural in my responses with the truth of the word of God. I want those words to be right there on the tip of my tongue, ready to speak them. And so often, what is on the tip of our tongue? A bad word? A derogatory phrase? Oh, I dealt with young people, and I know... It's true of adults, and it is so common in the comedy world today. People have made millions of dollars with put-downs and cut-downs and mocking and making fun of. Nowadays, night, I don't watch, I've never watched the late-night shows, never watched them. Nowadays, they're just a bunch of politics and ripping on conservatives and yada, yada. But I've been around young people, I've been around adults, and it's like the first thing out of their mouth is a put-down. is something demeaning, something sarcastic, something that is cutting, that is biting, that is a dig. And I don't know about you, but I get, tired of, I get tired of being around people when everything you say has some sort of snarky, sarcastic, cutting kind of answer. Don't you get tired of being around people like that? They just get annoying. And we have to be careful. Some of us have the gift of sarcasm, and we have to work on that, all right? You know, we, we have quick wits, but we're, 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 to, we're to tease on, 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 on positive things, tease on strengths, not tease on weaknesses. And the secular world's got it all twisted, it's all backwards. But we can be so quick, and I, again, I can think of some young people that just would drive me crazy as I would deal with them in school as a, as a principal. And it's like the very first thing out of their mouth whenever they're around their peers is something that is making fun of, that is putting somebody down. And I just want to say, can you think of something positive to say? Why is it that the first thing out of your mouth is something that is going to make the other, other person feel stupid or dumb or belittled in some way? And then we've been around people where the first thing out of their mouth is something vulgar. It is a cuss word. And that, that's the way it is with Christians now. So-called Bible-believing. I'm so frustrated with Christians who just cuss and use all kinds of vulgarity. And it's just natural and normal. And that's part of being relevant and being in touch with the world. Because you've got to be able to appeal to the world in order to reach them with Christ. In order to reach them with the gospel, you've got to talk like them, you've got to listen to the same things and watch and be able to have the relevant topics, and then you can sneak the gospel in later. That, that's nonsense. We see the psalmist saying, I want to be ready to speak the truth. I want to be ready to speak the word of God. Now, it doesn't mean we walk around like a, 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 a biblical machine gun. 
okay, where we're just shooting off scripture and walking around like we're the spiritual police. And I've been around people like that who they just, every, everything is to try to make themselves look so spiritual and so pious. And that's the other extreme. I'm not talking about that. But it should, be, it should be so natural and normal for us to talk about the things of God and for us to give an answer from what does the Bible say. It should, oh, should be normal for us to get into a conversation and then for things to just begin to go to the topics of what God has done and how God is working and what God has dealt with me about or sharing and building each other up and sharpening iron, sharpening iron. And that's the way it should be. And that's what the psalmist is, is asking. Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. And then down in verse 46, I will speak of thy testimonies. I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. Here we see that there are times where God does give us opportunities to speak the truth. To those who are in power, to those who are in authority, to those who are above us in power and authority, in whatever the, 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 the authority, the rule, the, the power they might have. I don't know exactly what the psalmist is referring to, but sometimes we do have to speak to a boss, to a manager, to someone who is higher in authority over us. Do they see the testimony of God? in the way we speak? Does our words, do our words reflect that we have a relationship with the God of the universe, with Jesus Christ who saved us? So when we speak to the boss, to the manager, to the leader, that we do so with respect, in a way that honors God, that we may disagree we may be making an appeal, or we may just be following orders or having to explain our role or why we're doing what we're doing or just giving a report. But does our life, does our word, do our words give testimony before kings, before those who are in authority and power over us, give testimony to the word of God, to how the truth has impacted our lives? to our walk with God, to our character, to our integrity that comes from a right relationship with God. Now, I know that there are some who they think that the gospel needs a person of fame, of fortune, of authority, of power. The gospel needs someone of that higher place in society in order for the gospel to really be effective. There needs to be a president, there needs to be someone famous, there needs to be someone who has a lot of fame. If they get saved, then that's really what's going to make the gospel impactful on society. And I've known preachers through the years, I won't name names, but I've known preachers through the years who were very good at playing politics and working their way up through the ranks. And there, are, there have been some Christians in the sports world and in other areas of popular culture. And they find a way to work their way up through the ranks, through pop culture and in politics. And they do so often through compromise. They do so often through various little 
compromises on the word of God, and then they get to a place where they are the ones who are able to speak in a national or international fashion or to certain people in power or prestige or fame. And they think, oh, if that person who is in popularity, if that person who is in power, if that person who is famous will get saved, then there will be a real verification of the truth of the word of God. But I don't see that pattern in scripture. As a matter of fact, I see the pattern of a Paul who under persecution was brought before politicians and famous people and magistrates. And he shared the gospel with them. He pleaded for them to repent. Even to the point where a King Agrippa says, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. I see in John the Baptist who spoke up to a politician and called him out because Herod was living with his brother's wife. He was committing adultery. And John the Baptist got put in prison and eventually was beheaded. I look at even our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that we've been, as we've been studying in the book of John. It was in his trials, in his persecution, in his crucifixion, in his death that he stood before some of the greatest leaders, humanly speaking, politically speaking, of the land. As we've talked about Annas and Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate. And I'm not saying that we can't have opportunity. But many times, how do you get into the inner circle of politicians? Manipulation, intrigue, compromise. And I see so many times when preachers compromise in order to try to get a national or an international reputation, and then they say, well, that gave me the opportunity to share the gospel with famous people, with people who are popular, who have a national reputation. And I just wonder sometimes if it isn't through compromise that they get there. And then what does that do for the message of the gospel when they get to that place? The gospel means nothing because there's been compromise all along the way. Does the gospel need a famous person to get saved in order for it to be powerful? Does the gospel need a superstar, a celebrity to get saved for it to be the power of God into salvation? The gospel is the power of God into salvation in the Sunday school room right down the hall where our teachers give the gospel to young people. To, from this pulpit to the places that we go where average, everyday, salt-of-the-earth people like you and me share the gospel with others. And the gospel is the power of God into salvation. The gospel doesn't need to be famous and popular and get national credibility for it to have the power of God. No, the gospel in its essence is the power of God into salvation. And many times we just need to get out of the way. And it's our compromises and it's our lack of testimony. It's our lack of character. It's our lack of integrity. It's our sin. It's the reproach that we brought in the name of Christ that actually affects our ability to share the gospel effectively. And many times churches are filled with unsaved people because there's a weak preacher behind a tiny pulpit. Well, if they even have a pulpit. And they're not declaring the whole counsel of God and preaching the true gospel. 
And it's a shame we see churches fill up with unsaved people because the word of God is not faithfully preached. Finally, we need to lift high the word of God. And we see here, verse 44, So shall I keep thy law continually forever and ever. Verse 45, And I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. Verse 47, And I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. Verse 48, My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments, which I have loved, and I will meditate in thy statutes. Very quickly here, we see there again in verse 44, So shall I keep thy law. This word keep, in the original language, we find it translated in Psalm 130 and verse 6 as watch. In Genesis 3 and verse 24, we see it translated keep, and it has to do with the angels guarding the tree of life, standing guard before the Garden of Eden. So the word keep has to do with guarding, protecting, preserving, attending to that which is valuable, that which is important. Keeping the word of God means to regard it with high value as the most important Entity, the most important thing that we can possibly protect, preserve, that we can regard, that we can value. But we don't see the word of God that way many times, do we? We get so distracted by all of the news and the media and all the talk and all the opinions. And we get so busy and we get so distracted. And of course, there's always sin that can affect us. When we should be keeping, protecting, guarding, preserving, attending to, keeping the word of God valuable and our most important thing in our lives. Verse 45 speaks to liberty. Now immediately when we see that word liberty, we think of liberty in the terms of the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, right? This word liberty has to do with room Broadness, a large place. Psalm 118, verse 5, Proverbs 4 and verse 12, Psalm 18 and verse 36 all make reference to this word liberty. In Nehemiah 3 and verse number 8, it's referred, it's used to describe the wall that is broad. It's used to describe the work that is large. We think of liberty as me getting to do whatever I want. I have freedom. Whatever my heart's desire, whatever I feel like doing, that's what I get to do. Well, the word of God, when we read here in verse 45, I will walk at liberty. The psalmist is saying, I walk according to, when I walk according to God's word, I walk in a large place, in a broad place. In a place, no, it's not where I get to do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it, however I want to do it. It's I get to walk in the blessings of God. I get to walk in a place where I'm not suffocated by sin, where I'm not straddled and strapped by sin. Some of you are claustrophobic people. I'm not a particularly claustrophobic person. I can get into an elevator with four, five, six people, and I'm fine. Some people, they get into an elevator with one or two people, and it's, <laughs> you don't like caves. You don't like any place that's slow or small that's confined. Um, some people are, are, are that way. 
the idea is when we walk according to God's word, when we keep God's word, we walk unrestrained by sin. We're not, stra- we're not constrained by sin. We're walking in a large place, a place of blessing, a place where there's room to experience the blessings of God, the freedom to serve God, to love God, to know God, and to enjoy His pleasures and His joy and His blessings. But that's the opposite of what the world says. The world says that Christianity is restrictive, it's constraining, it's prudish. Oh, you're not going to have any fun. You're not going to be able to enjoy life. Don't you realize there's all these things that we can have that we can just do and we can just live this licentious lifestyle and we can just have whatever it is that we want. And this idea now in our culture of liberty is that I get to totally express myself in any way that I want and you have to celebrate my expression of myself. And that's not at all what the Word of God says. The Word of God says there is freedom in the truth. The truth will set us free. It will set us in a large place, in a place of room, of broadness, for God's blessing, for God's honor, for the joy of the Lord, for godly pleasures that bring satisfaction, that bring true and lasting joy. That's what the psalmist is asking for. If we think of Samson, one preacher said it this way, Sin binds, sin blinds, and sin grinds. You think of Samson, that's what happened. It bound him, it blinded him. Next thing you know, he was grinding like an animal in the courtyard, out in the field, like an animal turning that grinder. We've heard it said that sin takes us farther than we want to go, keeps us longer than we want to stay, and costs us more then we want to pay. Sin constricts, it restricts, it makes us slaves to our lusts, our passions, and to our selfishness. The psalmist says, I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments. What is he saying as we close here? He is saying that we have such a desire for the word of God that we hug it. We handle it in a way of an embrace. There is, I don't, I don't come from a very touchy-feely family, okay? I, I, don't, mind, I don't mind a hug. I, I really don't. Um, a, a kiss on the cheek, uh, the holy kiss, greet the brother, nah, that might be a bit too much. I'm glad that's more of a cultural thing, okay? And I, I've been in some places where they, they do that kind of thing. But I'm not, I'm not a big, it just didn't, I just didn't grow up in a family with a lot of, Hugs and kisses. And that's fine. That's a wonderful thing. I love it when families have that, and I don't mind a good hug. I'm more of a shoulder hug kind of guy. That's what we've done with our kids. Um, And and I hope that we haven't ruined them (laughs) in any way. But there is something special. There is something warm. There is something bonding about a warm embrace, isn't there? Think of a child with their mother. Think of a a child with, with dad. Think of a young child and... There's that hug. Do we have that kind of embrace of the word of God? Do we hold the word of God close? So close that it is right there for us to share with others. Through evangelism, through praise, 
through just sharing the faithfulness of our God and building others up and helping each other in discipleship and in mentoring and in leading. So many ways in which we can keep the Word of God, we can lift high the Word of God, we can embrace it and share it, that we might be mutually edified and grow in our relationship with the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage that helps us so much. Lord, as we speak the truth of the Word of God, we understand that it must come from a heart that's already in tune with the Word, that's already embracing the Word, that's already experienced the mercy and the salvation of God, the measure, the standard by which we measure mercy. And Lord, as we see the great mercy that you have showed us, we are motivated and have a burdened desire to share that with others and to share the truth of the mercies of God. Lord, help us to lift high the word of God. Help us to embrace the word of God and live it out. And we pray that you will bless now in this closing hymn as we sing praises to your name once again. May our hearts be drawn to you. In Jesus' name we pray.